0: How can the four just men accomplish their nefarious plan, in spite of the Herculean precautions of Scotland Yard? Edgar Wallace, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to The Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. You can also purchase our app or shop for t-shirts and other merchandise. Links can be found in the notes to today's episode. If you have the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. We'd also like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is coming along. I've been a little under the weather this week, and I only got half an hour recorded, but I'm back at it. I'd like to send out part one next week, so keep an eye on your inboxes. I still have a few more hours to record until we are finished. Please make sure that your membership status is current, as I will be sending the completed audiobook out to all current financial supporting members. I'm going to be at the FanX Comic Con in Salt Lake City on Saturday. I'll be on a panel called The Life-Changing Magic of Embracing Your Inner Nerd. It will be on Saturday the 7th at noon. Apparently, I'm a bit of an authority on nerding out loud and proud. If you're in town, drop by. I'd love to see you. And I have stickers. And now for our personal moment of the week. Last Saturday we went to the farmer's market. We live close to downtown Provo, so it was just a couple blocks from our house. So we walked over, and it was so amazingly neat. We were walking around, smelling all the fun food, looking at all the stuff. There was a lady from Uganda selling, you know, little chiseled-out elephants and giraffes to send the money back to orphanages in Uganda. Uh, So we had to get one of those. And then we got some fresh local bread that was made with, like, apricot and gorgonzola and asiago cheese and green onion. It was, it was really amazing stuff. Uh, and then we realized that peaches were on, and so we got a whole box of peaches, and we've been trying to chip away at those all week. So they've been in all the lunches, they've been like, I don't know, we're trying to make peach cobbler. What do you do with peaches other than just eat them? They're wonderful. So I don't know, you taste the sample and you're like, okay, well I need a whole box of those now. Can't go without that. So we did. That's what's been going on. We've been chipping away at the bread and peaches all week. It's been a great time. And now, The Four Just Men, part four of four, by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 10. Three Who Died A passenger, leisurely selecting his compartment during the wait at Kensington, opened a carriage door and staggered back, coughing. A solicitous porter and an alarmed station official ran forward and pulled open the door, and the sickly odor of almonds pervaded the station. A little knot of passengers gathered and peered over one another's shoulders, whilst the station inspector investigated. By and by came a doctor and a stretcher and a policeman from the street without. Together they lifted the huddled form of a dead man from the carriage and laid it on the platform. Did you find anything? asked the policeman. A sovereign and a broken bottle, was the reply. The policeman fumbled in the dead man's pockets. I don't suppose he'll have any papers to show who he is he said with knowledge. Here's a first-class ticket. It must be a case of suicide. Here's a card. He turned it over and read it, and his face underwent a change. He gave a few hurried instructions, then made his way to the nearest telegraph office. Superintendent Falmouth, who had snatched a few hours' sleep at the Downing Street house, rose with a troubled mind and an uneasy feeling that in spite of all his precautions, the day would end disastrously. He was hardly dressed before the arrival of the assistant commissioner was announced. "'I have your report, Falmouth,' was the official's greeting. "'You did perfectly right to release Marks. Have you had news of him this morning?' "'No.' Hm, said the commissioner thoughtfully. "'I wonder whether—' He did not finish his sentence.' Has it occurred to you that the four may have realized their danger? The detective's face showed surprise. Why, of course, sir. Have you considered what their probable line of action will be? N- no, unless it takes the form of an attempt to get out of the country. Has it struck you that whilst this man Marks is looking for them, they are probably seeking him? Billy's smart, said the detective uneasily. "'So are they,' said the Commissioner, with an emphatic nod. "'My advice is to get in touch with Marks, "'and put two of your best men to watch him.' "'That shall be done at once,' replied Falmouth. "'I'm afraid that is the precaution we should have taken before.' "'I'm going to see Sir Philip,' the Commissioner went on, "'and he added with a dubious smile. "'I shall be obliged to frighten him a little. "'What is the idea? "'We wish him to drop this bill.' Have you seen the morning papers? No, sir. They are unanimous that the bill should be abandoned. They say because it is not sufficiently important to warrant the risk that the country itself is divided on its merit. But as a matter of fact, they are afraid of the consequence. And upon my soul, I am a little afraid, too. He mounted the stairs and was challenged at the landing by one of his subordinates. This was a system introduced after the episode of the disguised detective. The Foreign Minister was now in a state of siege. Nobody had to be trusted. A password had been initiated, and every precaution taken to ensure against a repetition of the previous mistake. His hand was raised to knock upon the panel of the study, when he felt his arm gripped. He turned to see Falmouth with white face and startled eyes. "'They've finished, Billy,' said the detective breathlessly. "'He has just been found in a railway carriage at Kensington.' "'The Commissioner whistled. "'How is it done?' he asked. "'Falmouth was the picture of haggard despair. "'Prosic acid gas,' he said bitterly. "'They are scientific. "'Look you, sir, persuade this man to drop this damn bill.' "'He pointed to the door of Sir Philip's room. "'We shall never save him.' I've got the feeling in my bones that he is a doomed man. Nonsense, the Commissioner answered sharply. You are growing nervous. You haven't had enough sleep, Falmouth. That isn't spoken like your real self. We must save him. He turned from the study and beckoned one of the officers who guarded the landing. Sergeant, tell Inspector Collins to send an emergency call throughout the area for reserves to gather immediately.' "'I will put such a cordon round Raymond to-day,' he went on, addressing Falmouth, "'that no man shall reach him without the fear of being crushed to death.' And within an hour there was witnessed in London a scene that has no parallel in the history of the metropolis. From every district there came a small army of policemen. They arrived by train, by tramway car, by motor-bus, by every vehicle and method of traction, they could be requisitioned or seized. They streamed from the stations, they poured through the thoroughfares, till London stood aghast at the realization of the strength of her civic defences. Whitehall was soon packed from end to end. St. James's Park was black with them. Automatically, Whitehall, Charles Street, Birdcage Walk, and the eastern end of the mall were barred to all traffic by solid phalanxes of mounted constables. St. George's Street was in the hands of the force. The roof of every house was occupied by a uniformed man. Not a house or room that overlooked in the slightest degree the Foreign Secretary's residence, but was subjected to a rigorous search. It was as though martial law had been proclaimed, and indeed two regiments of guards were under arms the whole of the day, ready for any emergency. In Sir Philip's room, the Commissioner, backed by Falmouth, "'made his last appeal to the stubborn man whose life was threatened. "'I tell you, sir,' said the Commissioner earnestly, "'we can do no more than we have done, and I am still afraid. "'These men affect me as would something supernatural. "'I have a horrible dread that, for all our precautions, "'we have left something out of our reckoning, "'that we are leaving unguarded some avenue "'which, by their devilish ingenuity, they may utilize. The death of this man Marx has unnerved me. The four are ubiquitous as well as omnipotent. I beg of you, sir, for God's sake, think well before you finally reject their terms. Is the passage of this bill so absolutely necessary?' He paused. "'Is it worth your life?' he asked with blunt directness, and the crudity of the question made Sir Philip wince. He waited some time before he replied, and when he spoke— His voice was low and firm. "'I shall not withdraw,' he said slowly, with a dull, dogged evenness of tone. "'I shall not withdraw in any circumstance. "'I have gone too far,' he went on, raising a hand to check Falmouth's appeal. "'I have got beyond fear. "'I have even got beyond resentment.' It is now, to me, a question of justice. Am I right in introducing a law that will remove from this country colonies of dangerously intelligent criminals, who, whilst enjoying immunity from arrest, urge ignorant men forward to commit acts of violence and treason? If I am right, the four just men are wrong. Or are they right? Is this measure an unjust thing, an act of tyranny? A piece of barbarism dropped into the very center of twentieth century thought, an anachronism? If these men are right, then I am wrong. So it has come to this that I have to satisfy my mind as to the standard of right and wrong that I must accept. And I accept my own. He met the wondering gaze of the officers with a calm, "'unflinching countenance. "'You were wise to take the precautions you have,' he resumed quietly. "'I have been foolish to chafe under your protective care.' "'We must take even further precautions,' the Commissioner interrupted. "'Between six and half-past eight o'clock to-night, "'we wish you to remain in your study, "'and under no circumstance to open the door to a single person, "'even to myself or Mr Falmouth.' "'During that time you must keep your door locked.' "'He hesitated. "'If you would rather have one of us with you—' "'No, no,' was the minister's quick reply. "'After the impersonation of yesterday, I would rather be alone.' "'The commissioner nodded. "'This room is anarchist-proof,' he said, "'waving his hand round the apartment. "'During the night we have made a thorough inspection.' Examine the floors, the wall, the ceiling, the fixed steel shields to the shutters. He looked round the chamber with the scrutiny of a man to whom every visible object was familiar. Then he noticed something new had been introduced. On the table stood a blue china bowl full of roses. This is new, he said, bending his head to catch the fragrance of the beautiful flowers. Yes, was Raymond's careless reply. They were sent from my house in Hereford this morning. The commissioner plucked a leaf from one of the blooms and rolled it between his fingers. They look so real, he said paradoxically, that they might even be artificial. As he spoke, he was conscious that he associated the roses in some way with... What? He passed slowly down the noble marble stairway. A policeman stood on every other step, "'and gave his views to Falmouth. "'You cannot blame the old man for his decision. "'In fact, I admire him today more than I have ever done before. "'But... "'There was a sudden solemnity in his voice. "'I am afraid. "'I... "'I'm afraid.' "'Falmouth said nothing. "'The notebook tells nothing,' the Commissioner continued, "'save the route that Sir Philip might have taken... Had he been anxious to arrive at 44 Downing Street by back streets. The futility of the plan is almost alarming, for there is so much evidence of a strong, subtle mind behind the seeming innocence of this list of streets that I am confident that we have not got hold of the true inwardness of its meaning. He passed into the streets and threaded his way between crowds of policemen. The extraordinary character of the precautions taken by the police had the natural result of keeping the general public ignorant of all that was happening in Downing Street. Reporters were prohibited within the magic circle, and newspapers, and particularly the evening newspapers, had to depend upon such information as was grudgingly offered by Scotland Yard. This was scanty, while their clues and theories, which were many, were various and wonderful. The Megaphone THE NEWSPAPER THAT REGARDED ITSELF AS BEING THE MOST DIRECTLY INTERESTED IN THE DOINGS OF THE FOUR JUST MEN, STRAINED EVERY NERVE TO OBTAIN NEWS OF THE LATEST DEVELOPMENTS. WITH THE COMING OF THE FATAL DAY, EXCITEMENT HAD REACHED AN EXTRAORDINARY PITCH. EVERY FRESH EDITION OF THE EVENING NEWSPAPERS WAS ABSORBED AS SOON AS IT REACHED THE STREETS. THERE WAS LITTLE MATERIAL TO SATISFY THE APPETITE OF A SENSATION-LOVING PUBLIC, BUT SUCH AS THERE WAS, WAS GIVEN. Pictures of 44 Downing Street, portraits of the minister, plans of the vicinity of the Foreign Office, with diagrams illustrating existing police precautions, stood out from columns of letterpress dealing, not for the first, but for the dozenth time, with the careers of the four as revealed by their crimes. And with curiosity at its height, and all London, all England, the whole of the civilized world, talking of one thing and one thing only, there came like a bombshell the news of Mark's death. Variously described as one of the detectives engaged in the case, as a foreign police officer, as Falmouth himself, the death of Mark's grew from suicide in a railway carriage to its real importance. Within an hour, the story of the tragedy, inaccurate in detail, true in substance, filled the columns of the press, mystery on mystery. Who was this ill-dressed man? What part was he playing in the great game? How came he by his death? Asked the world instantly. And little by little, pieced together by ubiquitous newsmen, the story was made known. On top of this news came the great police march on Whitehall. Here was evidence of the serious view the authorities were taking. From my vantage place, wrote Smith in the megaphone, I could see the length of Whitehall. It was the most wonderful spectacle that London has ever witnessed. I saw nothing but a great sea of black helmets reaching from one end of the broad thoroughfare to the other. Police! The whole vicinity was black with police. They thronged side streets. They crowded into the park. They formed not a cordon, but a mass, through which it was impossible to penetrate. For the commissioners of police were leaving nothing to chance. If they were satisfied that cunning could be matched by cunning, craft by craft, stealth by counter-stealth, they would have been content to defend their charge on conventional lines. But they were outmaneuvered. The stake was too high to depend upon strategy. This was a case that demanded brute force. It is difficult, writing so long after the event, to realize how the terror of the four had so firmly fastened upon the finest police organization in the world to appreciate the panic that had come upon a body renowned for its clear-headedness. The crowd that blocked the approaches to Whitehall soon began to grow as the news of Billy's death circulated. And soon after two o'clock that afternoon, by order of the commissioner, Westminster Bridge was closed to all traffic, vehicular or passenger. The section of the embankment that runs between Westminster and Hungerford Bridge was next swept by the police and cleared of curious pedestrians. Northumberland Avenue was barred, and before three o'clock there was no space within five hundred yards of the official residence of Sir Philip Raymond that was not held by a representative of the law. Members of Parliament on their way to the House were escorted by mounted men, and taking on a reflected glory, were cheered by the crowd. All that afternoon a hundred thousand people waited patiently, seeing nothing, save towering above the heads of the host of constabulary, the spires and towers of the Mother of Parliaments, or the blank faces of the buildings, in Trafalgar Square, along the Mall, as far as the police would allow them, at the lower end of Victoria Street, eight deep along the Albert Embankment, growing in volume every hour. London waited. Waited in patience, orderly, content to stare steadfastly at nothing, deriving no satisfaction for their weariness, but the sense of being as near as it was humanly possible to be to the scene of a tragedy. A stranger, arriving in London, bewildered by this gathering, asked for the cause. A man standing on the outskirts of the embankment throng "'pointed across the river with the stem of his pipe. "'We're waiting for a man to be murdered,' he said simply, "'as one who describes a familiar function. "'About the edge of these throngs, "'newspaper boys drove a steady trade. "'From hand to hand the pink sheets were passed "'over the heads of the crowd. "'Every half-hour brought a new addition, a new theory, "'a new description of the scene in which they themselves "'were playing an ineffectual, if picturesque, part.' The clearing of the Thames Embankment produced an addition. The closing of Westminster Bridge brought another. The arrest of a foolish socialist who sought to harangue the crowd in Trafalgar Square was worthy of another. Every incident of the day was faithfully recorded and industriously devoured. All that afternoon they waited, telling and retelling the story of the four, theorizing, speculating, judging and they spoke of the culmination as one speaks of a promised spectacle, watching the slow-moving hands of Big Ben ticking off the laggard minutes. Only two more hours to wait, they said at six o'clock, and that sentence, or rather the tone of pleasurable anticipation in which it was said, indicated the spirit of the mob. For a mob is a cruel thing, heartless and unpitying. Seven o'clock boomed forth, and the angry hum of talk ceased. London watched, in silence, and with a quicker beating heart, the last hour crawl round the great clock style. There had been a slight alteration in the arrangements at Downing Street, and it was after seven o'clock, before Sir Philip, opening the door of his study, in which he had sat alone, beckoned the Commissioner and Falmouth to approach, they walked towards him, stopping a few feet from where he stood. The minister was pale, and there were lines on his face that had not been there before. But the hand that held the printed paper was steady, and his face was sphinx-like. "'I am about to lock my door,' he said calmly. "'I presume that the arrangements we have agreed upon will be carried out?' "'Yes, sir,' answered the commissioner quietly. Sir Philip was about to speak, but he checked himself. After a moment he spoke again. I have been a just man, according to my lights, he said half to himself. Whatever happens, I am satisfied that I am doing the right thing. What is that? Through the corridor there came a faint roar. The people, they are cheering you, said Falmouth. "'who just before had made a tour of inspection. "'The minister's lip curled in disdain, "'and a familiar acid crept into his voice. "'They will be terribly disappointed if nothing happens,' "'he said bitterly. "'The people. "'God save me from the people, "'their sympathy, their applause, "'their insufferable pity.' "'He turned and pushed open the door of his study, "'slowly closed the heavy portal.' and the two men heard the snick of the lock as he turned the key. Falmouth looked at his watch. Forty minutes, was his laconic comment. In the dark stood the four men. "'It is nearly time,' said the voice of Manfred, and Terry shuffled forward and groped on the floor for something. "'Let me strike a match,' he grumbled in Spanish. "'No!' It was Pocah's sharp voice that arrested him. It was Gonzalez who stooped quickly and passed sensitive fingers over the floor. He found one wire and placed it in Terry's hand. Then he reached up and found the other, and Terry deftly tied them together. "'Is it not time?' asked Terry, short of breath from his exertions. "'Wait.' Manfred was examining the illuminated dial of his watch, In silence, they waited. "'It is time,' said Manfred solemnly, and Terry stretched out his hand, stretched out his hand, and groaned and collapsed. The three heard the groan, felt rather than saw the swaying figure of the man, and heard the thud of him as he struck the floor. "'What has happened?' whispered a tremorless voice, "It was González. Manfred was at Terry's side, fumbling at his shirt. "'Terry has bungled and paid the consequence,' he said in a hushed voice. "'But Raymond, we shall see. We shall see,' said Manfred, still with his fingers over the heart of the fallen man. That forty minutes was the longest that Falmouth ever remembered spending— He had tried to pass it pleasantly by recounting some of the famous criminal cases in which he had played a leading role, but he found his tongue wandering after his mind. He grew incoherent, almost hysterical. The word had been passed round that there was to be no talking in tones above a whisper, and absolute silence reigned, save an occasional sibilant murmur as a necessary question was asked or answered. "'Policemen were established in every room, "'on the roof, in the basement, in every corridor, "'and each man was armed. "'Falmouth looked round. "'He sat in the secretary's office, "'having arranged for Hamilton to be at the house. "'Every door stood wide open, wedged back, "'so that no group of policemen should be out of sight of another. "'I cannot think what will happen,' "'he whispered for the twentieth time to his superior. It is impossible for those fellows to keep their promise. Absolutely impossible. The question, to my mind, is whether they will keep their other promise, was the Commissioner's reply. Whether, having found that they have failed, they will give up their attempt. One thing is certain, he proceeded. If Raymond comes out of this alive, his rotten bill will pass without opposition. He looked at his watch. "'To be exact, he had held his watch in his hand "'since Sir Philip had entered his room. "'It wants five minutes,' he sighed anxiously. "'He walked softly to the door of Sir Philip's room and listened. "'I can hear nothing,' he said. "'The next five minutes passed more slowly than any of the preceding. "'It is just on the hour,' said Falmouth in a strained voice. We have... The distant chime of Big Ben boomed once. The hour, he whispered, and both men listened. Two, muttered Falmouth, counting the strokes. Three. Four. Five. What's that? He muttered quickly. I heard nothing. Yes, I heard something. He sprang to the door and bent his head to the level of the keyhole. What is that? What? What? Then from the room came a quick, sharp cry of pain, a crash, and silence. "'Quick, this way, men!' shouted Falmouth, and threw his weight against the door. It did not yield a fraction of an inch. "'Together!' Three burly constables flung themselves against the panels, and the door smashed open. Falmouth and the Commissioner ran into the room. "'My God!' cried Falmouth in horror. Sprawled across the table at which he had been sitting was the figure of the foreign secretary. The paraphernalia that littered his table had been thrown to the floor as in a struggle. The commissioner stepped to the fallen man and raised him. One look at the face was sufficient. Dead, he whispered hoarsely. He looked around. Save for the police and the dead man, the room was empty. Chapter 11 A Newspaper Cutting The court was again crowded today in anticipation of the evidence of the Assistant Commissioner of Police and Sir Francis Catling, the famous surgeon. Before the proceedings recommenced, The coroner remarked that he had received a great number of letters from all kinds of people containing theories, some of them particularly fantastic, as to the cause of Sir Philip Raymond's death. The police inform me that they are eager to receive suggestions, said the coroner, and will welcome any view, however bizarre. The assistant commissioner of police was the first witness called, and gave in detail the story of the event's that had led up to the finding of the late secretary's dead body. He then went on to describe the appearance of the room. Heavy bookcases filled two sides of the room. The third, or southwest, was pierced with three windows. The fourth was occupied by a case, containing maps arranged on the roller principle. Were the windows fastened? Yes. And adequately protected? Yes, by wooden folding shutters sheathed with steel. Was there any indication that these had been tampered with? None whatever. Did you institute a search of the room? Yes, a minute search. By the foreman of the jury. Immediately? Yes. After the body was removed, every article of furniture was taken out of the room, the carpets were taken up, and the walls and ceilings stripped. And nothing was found? Nothing. Is there a fireplace in the room? Yes. Was there any possibility of any person effecting an entrance by that method? Absolutely none. You have seen the newspapers? Yes, some of them. You have seen the suggestion put forward that the deceased was slain by the introduction of a deadly gas? Yes. Was that possible? I hardly think so. By the foreman. Did you find any means by which such a gas could be introduced? The witness hesitated. None, except an old disused gas pipe that had an opening above the desk. Sensation. Was there any indication of the presence of such a gas? Absolutely none. No smell? None whatever. But there are gases which are at once deadly and scentless. Carbon dioxide, for example. Yes, there are. By the foreman. Did you test the atmosphere for the presence of such a gas? "'No, but I entered the room before it would have had time to dissipate. "'I should have noticed it. "'Was the room disarranged in any way? "'Except for the table, there was no disarrangement. "'Did you find the contents of the table disturbed?' "'Yes.' "'Will you describe exactly the appearance of the table?' "'One or two heavy articles of table furniture, "'such as the silver candlesticks, etc., "'alone remained in their positions. "'On the floor were a number of papers,' "'the inkstand, a pen, and—' "'Here the witness drew a note-case from his pocket "'and extracted a small black shriveled object, "'a smashed flower bowl, and a number of roses. "'Did you find anything in the dead man's hand?' "'Yes, I found this.' "'The detective held up a withered rosebud, "'and a thrill of horror ran through the court. "'That is a rose?' "'Yes.' "'the coroner consulted the commissioner's written report. "'Did you notice anything peculiar about the hand?' "'Yes, where the flower had been there was a round black stain.' "'Sensation.' "'Can you account for that?' "'No.' "'By the foreman. "'What steps did you take when you discovered this? "'I had the flowers carefully collected, "'and as much of the water as was possible absorbed by clean blotting paper.' "'These were sent to the Home Office for analysis. "'Do you know the result of that analysis? "'So far as I know, it has revealed nothing. "'Did the analysis include leaves from the rose you have in your possession? "'Yes.' "'The Assistant Commissioner then went on to give details "'of the police arrangements for the day. "'It was impossible,' he emphatically stated, "'for any person to have entered or left 44 Downing Street "'without being observed.' Immediately after the murder, the police on duty were ordered to stand fast. Most of the men, said the witness, were on duty for twenty-six hours at a stretch. At this stage there was revealed the most sensational feature of the inquiry. It came with dramatic suddenness, and was the result of a question put by the coroner, who constantly referred to the commissioner's signed statement that lay before him. "'You know of a man called Terry?' "'Yes.' He was one of a band calling themselves the Four Just Men? I believe so. A reward was offered for his apprehension? Yes. He was suspected of complicity in the plot to murder Sir Philip Raymond? Yes. Has he been found? Yes. This monosyllabic reply drew a spontaneous cry of surprise from the crowded court. When was he found? This morning. "'Where? On Romney Marshes, Was he dead? Yes. Sensation. "'Was there anything peculiar about the body?' "'The whole court waited for the answer with bated breath. "'Yes, on his right palm was a stain, "'similar to that found on the hand of Sir Philip Raymond.' "'A shiver ran through the crowd of listeners. "'Was a rose found in his hand also? No.' by the foreman. Was there any indication how Terry came to where he was found? None. The witness added that no papers or documents of any kind were found upon the man. Sir Francis Catling was the next witness. He was sworn, and was accorded permission to give his evidence from the solicitor's table, on which he had spread the voluminous notes of his observations. For half an hour— he devoted himself to a purely technical record of his examinations. There were three possible causes of death. It might have been natural. The man's weak heart was sufficient to cause such. It might have been by asphyxiation. It might have been the result of a blow that, by some extraordinary means, left no contusion. There were no traces of poison. None. You have heard the evidence of the last witness? Yes. And that portion of the evidence that dealt with a black stain? Yes. Did you examine that stain? Yes. Have you formed any theories regarding it? Yes, it seems to me as if it were formed by an acid. Carbolic acid, for instance? Yes, but there was no indication of any of the acids of commerce. You saw the man Terry's hand? Yes. Was the stain of a similar character? Yes, but larger and more irregular. Are there any signs of acid? None. By the foreman. You have seen many of the fantastic theories put forward by the press and public. Yes, I have paid careful attention to them. And you see nothing in them that would lead you to believe that the deceased met his end by the method suggested? No. Gas? Impossible. It must have been immediately detected.' THE INTRODUCTION INTO THE ROOM OF SOME SUBTLE POISON THAT WOULD asphyxiate AND LEAVE NO TRACE. SUCH A DRUG IS UNKNOWN TO MEDICAL SCIENCE. YOU HAVE SEEN THE ROSE FOUND IN SIR PHILIP'S HAND? YES. HOW DO YOU ACCOUNT FOR THAT? I CANNOT ACCOUNT FOR IT. NOR FOR THE STAIN? NO. BY THE FOREMAN. YOU HAVE FORMED NO DEFINITE OPINION REGARDING THE CAUSE OF DEATH? Now, I merely submit one of the three suggestions I have offered. Are you a believer in hypnotism? Yes, to a certain extent. In hypnotic suggestion? Again, to a certain extent. Is it possible that the suggestion of death coming at a certain hour, so persistently threatened, might have led to death? I do not quite understand you. Is it possible that the deceased is a victim to hypnotic suggestion? I do not believe it possible. By the foreman. You speak of a blow leaving no contusion. In your experience, have you ever seen such a case? Yes, twice. But a blow sufficient to cause death? Yes. Without leaving a bruise or any mark whatever? Yes, I saw a case in Japan where a man, by exerting a peculiar pressure on the throat, produced instant death. Is that ordinary? No, it is very unordinary, sufficiently so to create a considerable stir in medical circles. The case was recorded in the British Medical Journal in 1896. And there was no contusion or bruise, absolutely none whatever. The famous surgeon then read a long extract from the British Medical Journal bearing out this statement. "'Would you say that the deceased died in this way?' "'It is possible.' By the foreman. Do you advance that as a serious possibility? Yes. With a few more questions of a technical character, the examination closed. As the great surgeon left the box there was a hum of conversation, and keen disappointment was felt on all sides. It had been hoped that the evidence of the medical expert would have thrown light into dark places, but it left the mystery of Sir Philip Raymond's death as far from explanation as ever. Superintendent Falmouth was the next witness called. The detective, who gave his evidence in clear tones, was evidently speaking under stress of very great emotion. He seemed to appreciate very keenly the failure of the police to safeguard the life of the dead minister. It is an open secret that immediately after the tragedy, both the officer and the assistant commissioner tendered their resignations which, at the express instruction of the Prime Minister, were not accepted. Mr. Falmouth repeated a great deal of the evidence already given by the Commissioner, and told the story of how he had stood on duty outside the Foreign Secretary's door at the moment of the tragedy. As he detailed the events of that evening, a deathly silence came upon the court. "'You say you heard a noise proceeding from the study?' "'Yes.' "'What sort of noise?' Well, it is hard to describe what I heard. It was one of those indefinite noises. It sounded like a chair being pulled across a soft surface. Would it be a noise like the sliding of a door or panel? Yes. Sensation. That is the noise that you described in your report? Yes. Was any panel discovered? No. Or any sliding door? No. Would it have been possible for a person to have secreted himself... In any of the bureaus or bookcases? No, these were examined. What happened next? I heard a click and a cry from Sir Philip and endeavoured to burst open the door. By the foreman. It was locked? Yes. And Sir Philip was alone? Yes, it was by his wish, a wish expressed earlier in the day. After the tragedy, did you make a systematic search both inside and outside the house? Yes. Did you make any discovery? None, except that I made a discovery curious in itself, but having no possible bearing on the case now. What was this? Well, it was the presence on the window sill of the room of two dead sparrows. Were these examined? Yes, but the surgeon who dissected them gave the opinion that they died from exposure and had fallen from the parapet above. Was there any trace of poison in these birds? None that could be discovered. At this point Sir Francis Catling was recalled. He had seen the birds. He could find no trace of poison. Granted the possibility of such a gas as we have already spoken of, a deadly gas with the property of rapid dissipation, might not the escape of a minute quantity of such a fume bring about the death of these birds? Yes, if they were resting on the window sill, By the foreman. Did you connect these birds with the tragedy? I do not, replied the witness emphatically. Superintendent Falmouth resumed his evidence. Were there any curious features that struck you? None. The coroner proceeded to question the witness concerning the relations of Marks with the police. Was the stain found on Sir Philip's hand, and on the hand of the man Terry, found also on Marks? No. No. It was as the court was dispersing, and little groups of men stood discussing the most extraordinary verdict ever given by a coroner's jury—death from some unknown cause, and willful murder against some person or persons unknown—that the coroner himself met on the threshold of the court a familiar face. "'Hello, Carson,' he said in surprise. "'You here, too? I should have thought that your bankrupts kept you busy.' Even on a day like this, extraordinary case. Extraordinary, agreed the other. Were you there all the time? Yes, replied the spectator. Did you notice what a bright foreman we had? Yes. I think he would make a smarter lawyer than a company promoter. You know him, then? Yes, yawned the official receiver. Poor devil. He thought he was going to set the Thames on fire. "'Floated a company to reproduce photogravures and things. "'Took Etherington's off our hands, but it's back again.' "'Has he failed?' asked the coroner, in surprise. "'Not exactly failed. He's just given it up. "'Says the climate doesn't suit him. "'What's his name again?' "'Manfred,' said the coroner. CHAPTER Twelve, CONCLUSION Falmouth sat on the opposite side of the chief commissioner's desk, his hands clasped before him. On the blotting pad lay a thin sheet of grey notepaper. The commissioner picked it up again and reread it. When you receive this, it ran, we who, for want of a better title, call ourselves the Four Just Men, will be scattered throughout Europe, and there is little likelihood of your ever tracing us. In no spirit of boastfulness, we say, We have accomplished that which we set ourselves to accomplish. In no sense of hypocrisy, we repeat our regret that such a step as we took was necessary. Sir Philip Raymond's death would appear to have been an accident. This much we confess. Terry bungled and paid the penalty. We depended too much upon his technical knowledge. Perhaps, by diligent search, you will solve the mystery of Sir Philip Raymond's death. When such a search is rewarded, you will realise the truth of this statement. Farewell. "'It tells us nothing,' said the Commissioner. Falmouth shook his head despairingly. "'Search,' he said bitterly. "'We have searched the house in Downing Street from end to end. "'Where else can we search?' Is there no paper amongst Sir Philip's documents that might conceivably put you on the track? None that we have seen? The chief bit the end of his pen thoughtfully. Has his country house been examined? Falmouth frowned. I didn't think that necessary. Nor Portland Place? No. It was locked up at the time of the murder. The commissioner rose. Try Portland Place, he advised. At present... It is in the hands of Sir Philip's executors. The detective hailed a hansom, and in a quarter of an hour found himself knocking upon the gloomy portals of the late Foreign Secretary's townhouse. A grave man-servant opened the door. It was Sir Philip's butler, a man known to Falmouth, who greeted him with a nod. I want to make a search of the house, Perks, he said. Has anything been touched? The man shook his head. ''No, Mr. Falmouth,'' he replied, ''everything is just as Sir Philip left it. The lawyer gentlemen have not even made an inventory.'' Falmouth walked through the chilly hall to the comfortable little room set apart for the butler. ''I should like to start with a study,'' he said. ''I am afraid there will be some difficulty there, sir,'' said Perks respectfully. ''Why?'' demanded Falmouth sharply. It is the only room in the house for which we have no key. Sir Philip had a special lock for his study, and carried the key with him. You see, being a cabinet minister, and a very careful man, he was very particular about people entering his study. Falmouth thought. A number of Sir Philip's private keys were deposited at Scotland Yard. He scribbled a brief note to his chief and sent a footman by cab to the yard. Whilst he was waiting, he sounded the butler. "'Where were you when the murder was committed, Perks?' he asked. "'In the country. Sir Philip sent away all the servants, you will remember. And the house was empty, absolutely empty. "'Was there any evidence on your return that any person had effected an entrance?' "'None, sir. It would be next to impossible to burgle this house.' There are alarm wires fixed, communicating with the police station, and the windows are automatically locked. There were no marks on the doors or windows that would lead you to believe that an entrance had been attempted. The butler shook his head emphatically. None. In the course of my daily duty I make a very careful inspection of the paintwork, and I should have noticed any marks of the kind.' In half an hour the footman, accompanied by a detective, returned, and Falmouth took from the plain-clothed officer a small bunch of keys. The butler led the way to the first floor. He indicated the study, a massive oaken door, fitted with a microscopic lock. Very carefully Falmouth made his selection of keys. Twice he tried unsuccessfully, but at the third attempt the lock turned with a click, "'and the door opened noiselessly. "'He stood for a moment at the entrance, "'for the room was in darkness. "'I forgot,' said Perks. "'The shutters are closed. "'Shall I open them?' "'If you please,' said the detective. "'In a few minutes the room was flooded with light. "'It was a plainly furnished apartment, "'rather similar in appearance, "'to that in which the Foreign Secretary met his end. "'It smelt mustily of old leather.' and the walls of the room were covered with bookshelves. In the centre stood a big mahogany writing-table, with bundles of papers neatly arranged. Falmouth took a rapid and careful survey of this desk. It was thick with accumulated dust. At one end, within reach of the vacant chair, stood an ordinary table telephone. "'No bells,' said Falmouth. "'No,' replied the butler, Sir Philip disliked Bell's, and there is a buzzer. Falmouth remembered. Of course, he said quickly. I remember. Hello. He bent forward eagerly. Why, what has happened to the telephone? He might well ask, for its steel was warped and twisted. Beneath where the vulcanite receiver stood was a tiny heap of black ash, and of the flexible cord that connected it with the outside world Nothing remained but a twisted piece of discolored wire. The table on which it stood was blistered as with some great heat. The detective drew a long breath. He turned to his subordinate. Run across to Miller's in Regent Street, the electrician, and ask Mr. Miller to come here at once. He was still standing gazing at the telephone when the electrician arrived. Mr. Miller, said Falmouth slowly. WHAT HAS HAPPENED TO THIS TELEPHONE? THE ELECTRICIAN ADJUSTED HIS pince-nez AND INSPECTED THE RUIN. HMM, HE SAID. IT RATHER LOOKS AS THOUGH SOME LINESMAN HAS BEEN CRIMINALLY careless." LINESMAN, WHAT DO YOU MEAN? DEMANDED FALMOUTH. I MEAN THE WORKMEN ENGAGED TO FIX TELEPHONE WIRES. HE MADE ANOTHER INSPECTION. CANNOT YOU SEE? HE POINTED TO THE BATTERED INSTRUMENT. I see the machine is entirely ruined, but why? The electrician stooped and picked up the scorched wire from the ground. What I mean is this, he said. Somebody has attached a wire carrying high voltage, probably an electric lighting wire, to this telephone line. And if anybody, had happened to have been at— He stopped suddenly, and his face went white. Good God, he whispered. "'Sir Philip Raymond was electrocuted.' "'For a while not one of the party spoke. "'Then Falmouth's hand darted into his pocket, "'and he drew out the little notebook which Billy Marks had stolen. "'That is the solution,' he cried. "'Here is the direction the wires took. "'But how is it that the telephone at Downing Street "'was not destroyed in a similar manner?' "'The electrician, white and shaking, "'shook his head impatiently. "'I have given up trying to account "'for the vagaries of electricity,' he said. "'Besides the current, "'the full force of the current, "'might have been diverted. "'A short circuit might have been effected. "'Anything might have happened.' "'Wait,' said Falmouth eagerly. "'Suppose the man making the connection had bungled, "'had taken the full force of the current himself. "'Would that have brought about this result?' "'It might.' "'Terry bungled.' "'and paid the penalty,' quoted Falmouth slowly. "'Raymond got a slight shock, sufficient to frighten him. "'He had a weak heart. "'The burn on his hand. "'The dead sparrows! "'By heaven! "'It's as clear as daylight!' "'Later a strong force of police raided the house in Carnaby Street, "'but they found nothing except a half-smoked cigarette "'bearing the name of a London tobacconist.' And the counterfoil of a passage ticket to New York. It was marked per R.M.S. Lucania, and was for three first-class passengers. When the Lucania arrived at New York, she was searched from stem to stern, but the four just men were not discovered. It was Gonzales who had placed the clue for the police to find. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Four Just Men, Part 4 of 4, by Edgar Wallace. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today.